0: Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In the 15th week of our series on the life of the Apostle Paul, we will learn through Paul's ministry in the ancient city of Ephesus that Christ's authority can never be challenged successfully by anyone or anything. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 and join us as we seek to become imitators of Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. we continue in the section that where Paul is in the city of ancient Ephesus today as we look at um, Acts chapter 19 11 through 41 and i will admit this is a lot of ground to cover and i was thinking about doing less a uh, shorter section of this passage and then i thought there's to me i see them thematically connected as we look at what happens in Paul's ministry in starting in verse 11 and then continuing in what happens with the community of Ephesus after that. So for context, and for those who are here for the first time, first time in a a long time, maybe for others, we always do well to look at a good map when we are thinking about studying this part of Scripture. And so here you have the Mediterranean Sea, and in the middle of that red circle is the city of Ephesus, right there. We have Corinth, where Paul has, been, uh, has just been. And, and what I find interesting and fascinating is that Paul actually ministered here in this community of Ephesus for about three years. He was in Corinth, I think, for maybe a year and a half. That's a long time when we think about how much movement Paul did throughout his missionary journeys and his church planting mission. But to be in Ephesus for three years was fascinating And what's fascinating and exciting to me is, unlike certain parts of the Bible, I've never been to Israel. I know several of you have, and it would be a wonderful thing to go um, one day, but I have been to Ephesus. And how many of you here have have been to Ephesus before? Just raise your hand, okay. How many of you online have been to Ephesus? Raise your hand. It's okay. We don't see you, but that's still okay. Okay. Uh, I have been to the city of Ephesus. My senior year of high school, our band and jazz bands, I know this is crazy, took a trip to Greece and Turkey. I don't know why any high school band or jazz band needs to take that and go on a Mediterranean cruise. We didn't need to, but we did. Um, thanks, Dad, for helping that to be financially possible for me. Um, but, uh, but it was an amazing trip, and even though a lot of my, my co- friends were not Christians, for me, it was very special to go to some places where the Apostle Paul had been. Um, and so we did walk through Ephesus in the country of Turkey. It's in Turkey, and it was a, uh, a significantly important city from the standpoint of its, its religious diversity. Um, it still boasts to this day As we will see, this comes into play in our text, this grand or great theater. I guess people can't decide on the name. I like great theater. It is still there today, and it's been partially restored. And I remember walking past that and thinking, the Apostle Paul, he was here at one point. And it's a reminder again that we read not a a book of some ancient myth, but a book about real people in real history experiencing real events and the real expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Ephesus was also the center of very diverse religious worship, including the temple cult to Artemis. Now, there are two Artemises in Greek uh, ancient culture. I don't know how to distinguish between the two other than I learned about Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, also known as Diana in Roman, Roman pagan mythology. Maybe you learned about that when you were, were growing up in your classical readings um, but this is a different Artemis. This is an Artemis who was a goddess of fertility and was worshipped really widely throughout the whole ancient world in the Roman Empire. And <clears throat> her followers built a temple to her, which was an enormous structure. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's considered the largest Greek temple ever constructed, larger than the Acropolis in, in Athens. It was over 200 feet wide, over 400 feet long, and it was made with a sport of 117 columns that were 60 feet high. This was a large building, and it would inspire awe to all who approached it. And uh, uh, the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, this is where I geek out a little bit as an architectural history major, but <clears throat> the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, I believe in the 6th century, uh, In an effort to sort of reclaim paganism for Christianity, he took most of the columns of this temple and used them in the support and construction of another building, which still stands today, called the Hagia Sophia, which is in the modern day city of Istanbul. And it is now a mosque, but it was originally constructed as a church using the columns from this great temple from antiquity. So um, it was an important structure and obviously remained so for centuries, even after Paul was there. And this cult to Diana was, was huge, and it was spread across the, the Roman Empire, but uh, it was centered here in Ephesus. And so we find Paul, once again, encountering a very interesting spiritual battle to proclaim the gospel in a culture that was steeped and immersed in something other than Jesus Christ. In this case, it was this temple for Diana. Now, what, the, uh, what will come into play as well in our, in our text is you have these um, local craftsmen who would work in silver. And according to legend, there may have been some kind of stone or meteorite that fell from heaven. We don't know for sure, but it had this, this appearance to it. And the locals began somehow to feel like Diana had, uh, or Artemis had visited them from heaven, and they, they set it up, and they, they worshipped it. And then they crafted these small silver trinkets some of which were sold as souvenirs or for those worshiping at the temple. Um, They sold these small silver trinkets that looked like the goddess to those who were coming to their community. That all comes into play in what we'll see and how the gospel of Jesus Christ cuts into the culture in such a way that causes quite a stir. So that is all background to the big idea that I'd like to present to us today as we get into our text from Acts chapter 19. The big idea is that Christ's authority can never be challenged, and that is because Jesus Christ has no rival. He has no rival. Amen? Amen. Well, let's dive into our text and see how this walks itself out in Paul's ministry. We start in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is in the community of Ephesus so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, just so we, we see, this is not about Paul. This is about Jesus Christ, and the authority that Jesus Christ has given Paul as his called apostle, his sent out one, To take this message to the peoples who are lost and need to encounter the risen Savior Jesus Christ by faith. So, this is not about Paul being a special person. This is about Paul responding to God's special calling on his life, just as you and I are called to respond to God's special calling on our lives to make him known in this world. But God, Jesus Christ, through Paul, was doing these amazing miracles. And we see this as an extension of Jesus' own ministry. Because as I read this about people even just touching Paul's handkerchief and being healed, I was reminded of another account from the life of Jesus, and maybe you're familiar with this too, where we read these following words from Luke 8, 43 and 44. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So, do you see the similarities of that connection? Jesus, with his ultimate and supreme authority, was allowing Paul, as his apostle, to have the authority to do similar miracles. This is an extension of Jesus' ministry through Paul. That is why we are called to be imitators of Paul as he imitated Christ. Paul was pointing everyone back to Jesus. So, these miracles were happening. And then there are some opportunists who would like to get in on this miraculous action. And we read this in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. And there's the the word there. It's exorcists. They were involved in some sort of um, dark uh, magic, some sort of dark demonic activity. That was what they were about. They undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, over who, those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, this is not the Jewish, the true Jewish high priest who was in Jerusalem at the temple. <clears throat> this is a, a local magician, religious guru of sorts who decided that he would have his sons take part in some local magic and dark traditions. And what they began to see is that Paul was doing this amazing work in the name of Jesus. So they begin to invoke the name of Jesus, probably even like a repetition, in the name of Jesus, out of, I say you come out, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. We don't know exactly how they used the name of Jesus, but we know that they were misusing the name of Jesus. And that is because we come to our first uh, failed rival to Jesus Christ here in the text, And that is the failed rival of fraudulent prophets. Now, this is not the first time that we see magicians or those practicing demonic activity seeking to gain something through the name and the ministry of Jesus. We know that Dale pointed out, I think several months ago, Dale, in Acts chapter 13, we had Bar-Jesus, who was a false prophet on the island of Cyprus when Paul and Barnabas were there. We also have a magician named Simon in Acts chapter 8 who was involved when Peter's ministry was going forth. And so what we see is that Luke in in Acts is, is trying to say there is no rival. All of these false religions, all of this false magic can never compare to the true authority, the true power of Jesus Christ, which can never be challenged or can never be leveraged as we see here in this text. So uh, let's read on what happens to these, these sons of Skeva as they're trying to exercise demons in the name of Jesus, but without the authority of Jesus. This, I mean, this is, is probably, was very scary, but it, it reads almost humorously to us. So verse 15, But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> How fascinating that even the demonic realm recognized the authority that Paul had as given by Jesus. Verse 16 And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, presumably, maybe all seven of them at one time, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. (laughs) The authority of Jesus, it has no rival including fraudulent prophets. We read on that as a result of this, verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them and all the name of the Lord, uh, and and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So through this very interesting event, Jesus, the true name of Jesus, with the true authority of Jesus and the true gospel of Jesus went forth. Also, and and this this is fascinating, pay attention now to what, the, the magicians of the region, and this was a, the kind of the, just the local popular cult to be a part of here. Pay attention to the life change that happened in these folks. And also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What a great status report on the the expansion of the church here in this pagan city of Ephesus. Again, with the background of that huge temple and these magic arts. And what we find is this book burning that took place, 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was a day's wage in that time. So this was 83,000 or 8,300 weeks worth of wages, 160 years worth of wages collectively that was burned as these people repented and turned from their ways to the true Jesus Christ. Now, we continue reading about what happens next. And as we look at the whole book of Acts, these next few verses are actually very pivotal in setting us up for this final stage of the book of Acts. And I'll explain what I mean by that after we read them. Verses 21 and 22, they seem sort of just factual, but they're actually very thematically important in Luke's Luke's work here in the book of Acts. Verse 21, Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. That was to go back to where he had been in Corinth and seeing uh, churches over there to the west And to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. That's an important data point. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's decided to stay in Ephesus in Asia. And why this is thematically important is these verses uh, show us what Luke has shown us at the very beginning when Jesus is with his men. And he says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, "But you will be my witnesses. You will receive power by the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth." And we see that that's the pattern that the book of Acts has followed. The church started in Jerusalem, spread to all Judea and Samaria, and eventually began spreading to the end of the earth. And What Luke is trying to set us up for is that the end of the earth, obviously, the world is round, there is no end. But the known world and the center of the known world at that time was the Roman Empire. And that was Paul's ultimate destination. And he realized this as the Holy Spirit made it clear. And so this takes a long shift now into this final section of the book of Acts, which starts here in 1921 and continues through the very end of the book. We find that it's a little longer, it's a little more descriptive, Luke himself joins back with Paul in his endeavors because we see the word we is used a lot more in this final section. And it becomes a significant shift as we look at what was happening in the ministry of Paul in the history of the church. Now, Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem because the Jerusalem church was experiencing some financially difficult times. and So he was collecting from the churches, encouraging his followers to collect from the churches in Asia so that they might take that offering to the city of Jerusalem, and Paul wanted to deliver that. But his ultimate destination to the end of the earth would be the city of Rome. Well, we continue reading about what disturbance the gospel would make as we pick it up in verse 23. Now, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. See also, there was a great disturbance as a result of the way. Now, what's interesting is the way this hasn't really been the reference to the Christian faith since back when Paul was persecuting the church in Acts chapter nine, when he asks for letters of permission to persecute those who are following the way. And yet here in a beautiful full circle picture, now we see others are trying to impede the progress of the way, just like Paul had been before he was converted. But clearly the gospel and the kingdom were disrupting culture. And here's why. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. This is what I was talking about, making these little silver trinkets. uh, Brought no little business to the craftsmen. (laughs) These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Folks, we get into this next failed rival. First, we have fraudulent prophets. Now we have fleeting profits. Fleeting profit, worldly wealth, financial gain oftentimes even in our world, oftentimes even in our Christian life, puts itself up as a rival to Jesus Christ. But what we'll see is that it is not in any way a rival to the true authority of Jesus Christ. And so you see the concern here with Demetrius. He calls together sort of the Ephesian chamber of commerce, and he says, guys, look, this guy Paul and this message and this Jesus that he's putting forth It's causing people to leave our religion. It's causing people, as a result of that, to stop supporting us financially. (laughs) The offerings aren't coming in much anymore because people are being drawn away to this Jesus through this man, Paul. And you can begin to see for Demetrius and the community here that it wasn't really about Artemis as much as it was about the almighty dollar for them. And so he he begins to say, we need to do something about this. But how interesting that the message was clear that Paul was saying in verse 26, gods made with hands are not gods. They are no gods at all. And that, is, that leads us really to the final false rival our failed rival. We have fraudulent prophets. We have fleeting prophet. And finally, we have false worship. False worship is no rival to the true authority and true worship of Jesus Christ. We find indeed that these silver trinkets, which people were not buying as much of, were were really just small idols. And I'm reminded of that bigger picture that, that God even painted for his people, the Israelites, in the wilderness in Exodus 23, when he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, And really, his first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. See also, no false worship. And he goes even so far to tell his people in Leviticus 19.14, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. So you can see this is God's heart for his people, that his people would be fully devoted to him and not have their their worship divided between uh, false gods or money um, or leveraging uh, the name of God for their own gain. But God wanted a, a people fully devoted to himself, nothing to get in the way. Here we see the true message of the gospel coming face to face with a system of religion that was counter to what all God had said was true. And like I said, we find a little bit of the motivation that's really behind what Demetrius was getting at as we read in verse 27. Notice the order here. And there is, uh, and there is danger not only that this trade, number one, this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple, number two is mentioned, the temple of, um, of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even des- deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So I find it interesting that he mentions trade. Oh yeah, and by the way, the temple too. I, I, think, to- I think that is revealing to what his true motivation was. Uh, his-, his heart is not really with the-, the worship of Artemis. It was maybe just a- an empty proclamation in some respects. It was really his trade that he was most concerned about. That fleeting prophet. So what happens? Then this gets back to our great theater here. Again, real places with real people in real history. So, uh, and this reminds me a lot of even the crowds at Jesus' um, trial before Pilate. If you can remember how the religious leaders were stirring up the crowds, it was a confusing mob. I'm sure a lot of people didn't even really know why they were there. They just knew that a bunch of people were showing up and being loud and there was something going on. As we read these verses of what happens, there's this riot that breaks out. Verse 28, and when they heard this, this is these kind of sort of business leaders in the community and probably other people listening around them. And When they all heard this, they were so enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I see a lot of similarity too. and they were yelling out, crucify him. This crowd is getting riled up. And if you've been in in crowds where this mob mentality takes over, it's very scary and it's very confusing. So the city, verse 29 reads, was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, this very place that you can go and visit today, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. They were fearful for Paul's safety. And this has happened before in places where Paul has wanted to go and speak. I wonder, guys, if Paul maybe saw this as an ideal opportunity for sharing Jesus. Here you have this whole crowd. And this this, uh, theater was big. We know here in our local context, you have Zabel Stadium, which seats about 12,300 people. This theater, if you can envision this in the ancient world, seated more than twice as many people as Zabel Stadium does. 25,000 people in 66 rows that went all the way up into this hillside. It's really remarkable. And maybe this, this crowd was filling this theater and Paul said, this is perfect. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to preach it to this crowd and share Jesus and Uh, the safety was too much of a risk for his disciples to let him do that. And so they held him back. And in fact, some of the local leadership, these Asiarchs, we read in verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So these were, were local leaders, somewhat governmental, somewhat business leaders who had said to Paul, we have been so impacted by this Jesus you've shared with us. Please, for your safety, do not go in. Now, Some were cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, I mean, we gloss over that, but for two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Um, they were fanatic. It was, it was crazy. You see some of those similarities to Jesus in his own trial and just the crowd yelling, crucify him, some not even knowing really what was going on. So after these two hours, which again, that is crazy to think about, the town clerk, who is like the mayor, finally steps in in verse 35. He had quieted the crowd. I'm sure that took, maybe it took two hours just to get everyone quiet. And he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. And here, even though he is, he's off base on, in his theology, uh, he actually shows some statesmanship here and some good leadership from a civic perspective. And he gives them some very good reasons to just calm down and go home. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. So he says, let's follow the due process of law in our community. Now that word proconsul you may recognize from Acts chapter 17 or sorry Acts chapter 18 when we were in the city of Corinth. And there was a proconsul by the name of Gallio who we talked about I think 2 weeks ago who was very influential. And when a very similar charge by the Jews was brought that this man was disrupting the law, Gallio said this is not a matter of civic concern, this is a matter of sacred concern. My hands are out of it. And because of Gallio's influential decision, because he was a very influential person in the Roman Empire, the other proconsuls had taken that sort of as that case law that they applied to their situation. So there was actually some almost legal precedent here for the proconsuls to say, you know what happened in Corinth? Leave these men alone. They're doing nothing wrong in our society. And so it was likely, again, that God was allowing, through that event, that decision by Gallio some years before to allow, or just the year before, to allow for Paul and his companions to continue to proclaim the gospel. So the town clerk continues, But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, which met three times a year. That was probably too much for them to wait. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So here the town clerk says, guys, if we keep this up, the Roman government's going to come in because they don't take well to riding in their empire. And we need to tone it down. And as far as I can tell, these men are not doing anything that's desecrating our temple or desecrating Artemis. Now, of course, indeed, the true gospel is an indictment against false religion. But this clerk was more interested in keeping the peace. So as a result of that, it appears that Paul and his companions were able to continue to stay in the city of Ephesus, continue to share the message of Jesus, continue to combat the magic and the false religion that was inundating that society in such a way that reminds us that Christ's authority can never be challenged. And Jesus Christ has no rival whether it's that failed rival of fraudulent prophets and false teachers. And guys, there are many out in our world today. If you look at some of the the ways in which people even try to take uh, the name of Jesus or, or the Bible, as one seminary professor once said, Bible, Bible, Bible. Everyone's talking about the Bible, but what are they saying when they're talking about the Bible? You have many people out there who are seeking to take this book and and turn it for their own advantage, for their own fleeting profit. I think specifically about the um, prosperity gospel or prosperity theology, also known as health and wealth theology, that says, oh, if you just have enough faith and if you just give enough money, God will make you healthy and happy, physically healthy. Uh, Guys, we, we have to look at the lives of the disciples and the apostles to know that that just doesn't hold water. Where was the physical health for those men who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel? I think too about, as even my daughter has been sharing with me, some of what she is discerningly seeing on social media about a group of people that refer to themselves as progressive Christians. Those that say, yeah, we know what the traditional and long-time historic teachings of the Bible and the church have said about this issue, about Um, human sexuality, or about truth, or about even God and His nature as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But you know what? We think that that's just a construct, and that you can become your own follower of Jesus in your own mind, in your own way. I, I don't see that in this book. That's because it's not in this book. Those are fraudulent prophets. Fleeting prophet? Folks, we live here in the 21st century in America. Most prosperous nation in the history of the world. And I can say even in my own life, there are times when I am tempted to put my faith in the almighty dollar rather than the authority and surety of the almighty God. And maybe maybe for you, that's an area where that's, that's bumping into your faithful walk with Jesus Christ and rivaling Him in your life. And finally, false worship. No, we don't have little silver trinkets of Artemis in our house. I mean, if you do, I hope it's just because it's just a, an artifact that someone gave you on a trip. Uh, but we don't worship that. We worship the Creator, not the created thing. We never replace God on the throne with anyone or anything else. And when we do, that idolatry rivals His authority in our lives. I'd like to encourage us with two Bible verses as we move into our time of conclusion and questions. And I'm excited I got through all this material. Thank you. Um, The first is Hebrews 12.1. Just thinking again about those magicians that burned those books, that 160 years worth of wages that were burned because they repented and turned to Jesus Christ. We are called in like manner to follow him faithfully today. And the words of Hebrews 12.1 remind us of this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Whatever sin, whatever idol, whatever false practice, it's like a weight. And I ran track and field in, in high school. And I'll tell you, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be running in my jeans and my boots That would just slow me down. I was already slow enough. But in the spiritual life, we run the race and shed those practices which Satan tempts tempts us with so that we might faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And then finally, Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, some translations say greed, which is idolatry. And when we do this, this allows us to, say it with me, be imitators of me as I am of Christ and also for me to live as Christ and to die as gain and to live as Paul did, which was a model that he modeled a life, surrendered to Jesus Christ for us to follow. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you'll join us next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org mensbreakfast. Have a great week, and God bless.